Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. We are so excited to have our friend, mentor, soul sister, and member of the Sakara Science Council on today's episode. Dr. Aviva Ram is a midwife, herbalist, a Yale-trained medical doctor, board-certified in family medicine with obstetrics, who has been bridging the best of traditional medicine with good science for over three decades. Her focus is on what she calls our total health ecology, utilizing exposome medicine to identify and reverse the root causes of chronic health conditions, particularly hormonal problems in women and common children's health problems. She is considered one of the world's leaders in botanical medicine and is the author of seven books on natural medicine, including the textbook Botanical Medicine for Women's Health and The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution. Dr. Rahm is the author of the Integrative Medicine Curriculum for Yale Internal Medicine and Pediatric Residencies. Her nonprofit organization, Dharma Moms, provides funding for midwifery education and salaries in high-risk, obstetric, low-resource communities. Dr. Ram lives and practices medicine in the Berkshires and New York City. As a member of our Sakara Science Council, we've collaborated with her on several products, including our Sakara Level 2 Detox Program, which many of you have had the pleasure of experiencing. Aviva is a force and someone we feel very lucky to call a friend. So welcome, Aviva. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to call you guys friends, too. We're so grateful to have you here. I wanted to start out with the question of um, you spent 20 years catching babies Mm -hmm. as a midwife and then later decided to go to Yale Medical School and become a doctor. How do you think that those 20 years of catching babies and helping women through that pivotal moment in their life affected and is impacting your ability and thoughts around your practice and being a doctor? So midwifery as a model, it actually means with woman. So Mm. it kind of tells you something right there, right? It's about a woman-centered practice, which means listening to stories that my clients or my patients are sharing, listening to their life experience, and putting it all together into what creates their health and their needs right now in the moment with whatever's going on with them. Whereas Western medicine is very doctor-centric. It's really about what's the protocol, what does the doctor think. It's much more dominator model, if you will, whereas a midwifery model is so much more collaborative. So for me, I actually feel like the background that I have makes me a much more effective practitioner because I'm actually spending time listening. You know, so many women's conditions, whether it's endometriosis, PCOS, an autoimmune condition, something going on in labor, even as we saw with Serena Williams, I mean, she had to basically fight to get someone to hear the fact that she knew she had clots in her lungs. Mm -hmm. So if we're listening, we're already 
so much further ahead of what we need to know to diagnose. But also healing isn't just what we give and what we do. It happens in the margins. It happens in the relationship. And that relationship creates trust. It also creates reciprocity. Like your patient trusts you and wants to do what you're offering. You're not just telling someone what to do. So on so many levels, that has just informed everything I do. And then also as a midwife, I used a lot of therapies that fell outside of the box of conventional medicine. So when I went into conventional medicine, I went in with a much broader toolkit. Really, midwifery is about trusting the body. And it's not just like, let's all forget that we sometimes need medicine or need hospitals. It's about let's start with the least interventive thing that we can do, which also happens to be more ecological a lot of the times. And then add-on intervention. So it informs everything I do. I love that so much, and it's just so powerful. It makes me feel like I wish every doctor <laughs> could start out as a midwife. You know, I you were one of my first phone calls when I thought about getting pregnant, and I remember that you you had a huge impact on me deciding to go with a midwife instead of an OBGYN, and it really is because it is rooted in the midwife believes in my body's capability to birth a human into this life. And that is so empowering. And if you're ever in a moment where you need to feel empowered and mothered, it is the moment where you're creating life. Mm. And thank it, you for that. Yeah, I'm no, so honored thank you. when you did call me. I was really excited. It also <laughs> felt like, to me, it's such an honor and it's never gotten old that it feels like a privilege when somebody includes me in their health in any way, but particularly in that very kind of sacred and vulnerable time of thinking about getting pregnant because it's a huge transition, right? You're making Indeed a major decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even yeah. if it's not happening with an intentional decision, it's a big transformation in your life. Yeah. yeah. But I love how that echoes into medicine mm-hmm. for you. And I love what you said about medicine should be about the individual story. I, I usually have the feeling when I go to a traditional doctor that I'm of their story. They're not about my story. So I'm swept up into percentages and statistics. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's not about my personal story. Yeah. So. I really mm-hmm. have this belief that healing traditions reflect the culture that they come from. And so if you look at like maybe a traditional, you know, like First Nations culture here, a lot of the medicine is going to be very earth-oriented. There's going to be ritual. There's going to be herbs. There are going to be things that connect you to the land. There's going to be vision quests. There's a, a belief in connection to the earth. If you went to any number of cultures, it's going to reflect what that kind of belief system is. And our culture is so technocratic. It's so disconnected from nature. It's so disconnected mm-hmm. from the body. And yeah. look, I mean, when I have a situation where I need to use an antibiotic or an emergency surgery. I'm so grateful to have it. It's just that somehow our technocratic solution seems to go to that first and actually go so far as to invalidate all the rest of it. And we expect things quick in our culture too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other thing about midwifery is you realize it's a process and a journey. It's not just a sort of like CA do B. And conventional medicine There's some advantages to an algorithm, like you see a situation and you know what sort of the best evidence response is, but it doesn't take into the unique accounting and the unique individual process, the unique individual body, the unique individual story. Mm -hmm. Just the arc of each of us is so different. And Mm -hmm. we've seen this change a little bit, like back decades ago, there was this thing called the Friedman curve, and it tells us how long a woman should be in each stage of labor. And this Friedman curve has been applied to women for, I think it's like six decades now. 
And about maybe 10 years ago, some researchers did a study and were like, we're holding every woman who goes into labor accountable to this chart. So if you're before three centimeters, you're not in labor. So anything you're experiencing, you know, just go home and deal with it on your own. Mm-hmm. If you're XYZ centimeters in labor, um, if you're XYZ hours in labor and you haven't dilated a certain amount, then an intervention is required. So this was based on 200 women and millions have been like put through C-sections or epidurals or inductions. Yep. And then someone did the study and they're like, yeah, this is actually not how normal labor works. And it's so much more individualized. But the thing is, like, these oopsies later mm-hmm. don't really address the fact that so many women were put through unnecessary treatments. And as midwives, we know, like, we know there was a study that actually looked at, um, uh, they did this, two different studies. One was just watching video. The midwives would watch a video and have to guess where a woman was in labor just by how she appeared. And the other was wow. no visual, just audio. And she had to in, like interpret how far dilated a woman was just by the sound, and it was wow. so such a high percentage of accuracy. It was incredible. That's amazing. If yeah. I had not given birth, I wouldn't believe that story. But now, after giving birth, I completely <laughs> agree. Yeah, yeah. One thing I was reading about your experience was that you mentioned you studied women's studies in school, mm-hmm. and that was part of your path in becoming a midwife and becoming a doctor. And I think that the type of medicine you're practicing is so feminist and and female empowering because so often women are told, no, that's just in your head, these symptoms, oh, you know, just get some rest or cheer up or something like that, when really something bigger could be going on, often hormonal, which... There's so much about the hormonal system that we still don't know or that a lot of doctors are not versed in. Can you talk a little bit about that and about what you're seeing in your practice and how you're helping them? Yeah. So, I mean, the the bias against women in medicine goes back literally hundreds of years. So even the basic foundation and premise that medicine was based on goes back to these philosophers like five, six hundred years ago. And the philosophy actually was women's bodies, like the earth, like nature, are meant to be plundered and used as men see fit. And so these people like Descartes and Bacon, who actually kind of were some of the early formulators of what has now evolved into modern medicine, were the foundation of it. And, oh my gosh, this is like, we could spend hours on this one. (laughs) But everything from like the word hysteria Mm-hmm. which was considered a medical diagnosis that women could be institutionalized for. But it could be having a child and not being married in the 1800s. It could be even in the early 20th century, a man could be having an affair and decide he didn't want to be married anymore. And he could basically have his wife institutionalized, but he had to get a doctor's approval. And this was actual legit stuff. Wow. Even It is terrifying. Even into... The 1990s, migraine was considered kind of a hysterical type of diagnosis, or women who were migrainers, as it's called, were either career women who couldn't, and this is like in the medical literature, I'm doing air quotes here for you guys who can't see me, (laughs) but were considered that kind of frigid woman who didn't want to submit to her responsibilities as a woman, endometriosis. Even a decade and a half ago, I mean, because I've been doing this for 35 years, I mean, I've also seen 
women come to me having been told these things, endometriosis was considered a career woman's condition. Wow. So, Why yeah. is that? So you were disconnected. Like you're, you're, somehow your immune system and your emotional self were in a battle and your body was trying to be womanly, but you were trying to be masculine, more air quotes, you guys. <laughs> and so you were harming your body. You were harming mm. your hormones and you were harming your uterus by, you know, making money and having a job. And so these so kinds of biases now. run really deep. Even now, you know, we've got this like whole huge opioid epidemic, right? So we look at pain in women. It's likely to be underdiagnosed. There are some new studies that have found that if a woman goes to her doctor and she's more attractive, more air quotes, but whatever that means, more attractive mm -hmm. or more put together in how she is dressed, she's thought to be faking it. And she doesn't like she obviously if she could get herself dressed and put makeup on, she couldn't be in pain. On the other hand, if you show up at the doctor's office in your sweats or looking disheveled or whatever that definition is, you're likely to be treated like you're pain medication seeking. So at either end, so another these studies looking at how women with pain are trying to navigate, how do I dress? How do I talk? Do I sit up? Do I slouch? Do I like act like I'm energized just wow. to get the right treatment? We know that women in hospital who have chest pain and are having a heart attack are more likely to die in the hospital because they were being treated like they were hypochondriac or had anxiety or were stressed out, whereas a man is more likely to get an actual cardiac workup. And the list goes on and on and on. And here's the thing. A lot of the kinds of symptoms that are, women are more likely to experience because of hormonal changes or because of autoimmune conditions, all of which are way, like 80% more likely in some, and more. In some, like Hashimoto's, 95% is going to be women. So you have things like aches and pains or fatigue or weight gain or depression or your period is irregular whatever it is, you know, along those lines, mm -hmm. these are vague symptoms that aren't really easily measurable. So we're also more likely to be considered hypochondriac. It's all in our head. Or the new version of it's all in your head is it's either stress or, a you know, depression. So right. take the pill, take meditate. an antidepressant, meditate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And isn't it exactly. also true that a lot of the studies that are done are typically done on men? Yes. Isn't there something around Ambien? So that's a really interesting one. So women have different what's called pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. It means that our physiology metabolizes drugs differently. But almost all studies on pharmaceuticals are done on men. And so women were taking a sleeping medication, taking it completely correctly. So the, the idea was you take it within a couple of hours of going to bed. You get some, you know, you get eight or so hours of sleep, nine hours of sleep. You wake up in the morning, you know, you get your day going and then you get in the car and you drive to work and you should be fine because if you're a man and you metabolize that drug pretty quickly, it should be out of your system by morning. So there were over 600 car accidents involving women who were taking this sleep medication before bed, taking it appropriately. And what was found is that because we don't metabolize it as well, we were the equivalent of driving quite drunk in the morning. So the FDA had to actually put a, um, a requirement of a lower dose on the box and then give it something called a black box warning, which is just like a big warning that this drug, you need to flag it for major mm -hmm. side effects. So That is wild. Yes. Even like the Dalcon Shield, which was the IUD in the 70s that really left so many women terrified about the IUD, even though we have completely different IUDs now. It had been on the market for six months before there were 
any studies in human women, and there were no oh. animal studies either. Oh so women were getting pelvic infections, becoming infertile, dying. And finally, someone did a baboon study, and something like 80% of the baboons in that study got pelvic, like severe pelvic infections, and many of them died. That drug stayed on the market for, I mean, that, that device stayed on the market. It was still being sold in the U.S. well into the early 80s. And then when it was discontinued here and the company went bankrupt because there were so many lawsuits, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, mm -hmm. then we exported it to other countries. So it was still being used in Central America into the 80s. Mm -hmm. so, That's so terrifying. Yeah, it really is. There's so much bias against women. And it's so hard because the more, as a woman, the more you speak out yeah. in a doctor's office. Like, we all have this, like, I mean, I don't use this, obviously, but I know it. Like, I was trained in this system. Like, the very specific eye roll. Like, it's that kind of patient. Well, that kind of patient means she's asking questions or she's pushing back or she's yeah. just inquisitive. And the more you go, so, like, in the United States, the average woman with an autoimmune disease will see five different doctors over four and a half years to get a diagnosis. The average woman with endometriosis is over nine years. Wow. To get in. And you can get a and lot of damage and scarring. What kind of tests should women be getting to find out if they have an autoimmune condition? Yeah, so there's like a whole specific set of tests. The first test you want to get if you think you have an autoimmune condition is something called an ANA. And it's what, like, what symptoms might someone have if they think they're, they might have an autoimmune condition? So autoimmune conditions, because they're so multisystemic, like inflammation can cause pretty much any symptom. And autoimmune conditions don't usually just affect one body system. So even if you have like a thyroid autoimmune condition, you've got inflammation in your body. Usually there's other stuff going on. So you could have aching in your joints and get diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome. You could have fatigue and be just told, oh, it's because you're a new mom or you're, you know, you're a mom who's got teenagers or, you know, any number of excuses. Weight gain is a really common symptom. But in general, for the autoimmune diseases, if you're feeling unusual fatigue and there's not a good reason for it, or even if there is a good reason for it, but you're feeling like, you know, this isn't normal for me. If you're feeling more depressed than usual, if you're feeling irritable, any aches and pains throughout your body, those are a really big flag for me that you should definitely get checked. So it's, you want to get an ANA, but you want to have your doctor order something called an ANA with reflex. So it's an anti-nuclear antibody. But if they just order that, it's really nonspecific. It could tell you you have it, but it doesn't mean you do. And that's checking They're, for inflammation or what is it? It's checking for markers of autoimmunity. So, okay. But it's not specific. It's just sort of like, oh, it would be like me saying, oh, you have inflammation. Right. It could be transient. doesn't mean you mm -hmm. have chronic inflammation. And the same with this test. But the reflex, so if the ANA comes back positive, then which is not a good thing. It's like the one-time positive is not a good mm -hmm. thing. Then an automatic set of next-level tests are ordered. And that automatic next-level test set will tell you if you have something like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or Sjogren's. And then you can match that up with symptoms as well. So there's sort of like levels of testing, but often physicians don't do it. And autoimmune diseases are really common, and they're getting more common. Yeah, so why do you think that is? And oh, can you explain how mm -hmm. autoimmune is created? Yes. So the reason it? I think it is, is um, when you read my bio, you talked, you mentioned something called exposome Yeah, we medicine. were going to ask about that. Yeah. So it's actually a really interesting field of medicine that's emerged in the last 15 years. And it's not actually happening in conventional medical schools. It's happening in environmental science. And so exposome medicine is kind of like what we all call root cause medicine. It's this really clear understanding that our environment 
our microbiome, our diet, not just our diet, but how well we metabolize food, um, our internal stress, so our ability to manage stress and our inherent resilience, which could be very variable, right? If you grew up in a home with an alcoholic parent or really vulnerable socioeconomic status, you may actually have different set of resilience or vulnerabilities than someone who grew up with a much more comfortable, secure lifestyle. So all of these things together aggregate and kind of like if you had like a Venn diagram, like two overlapping circles, you have this external exposome, which is all the things that we're exposed to. And then you have this internal exposome, which is all the things that you're made up of, like your microbiome and nutrition and all of that. And then you're in the middle. And it's how those interface with each other and how those interface with your genetic predispositions. And the reality is, Mm. it's like, we know that there are over 80,000 environmental toxins or chemicals that we're exposed to that could be toxins. And we don't even know, like those are 80,000 individual ones. We don't know what those do when they create a chemical soup in our body and they're interacting with each other. We are, as I talk about a lot with my patients and in my books, on the one hand, we're overstimulated and we're undernourished. So our environmental exposures are really taxing to our detoxification system. And at the same time, only 14% of us are getting the daily amount of fruits and vegetables that we need. And that's the amount de- defined yeah. by, like, the federal government. That's Which not, not the Sakara amount. amount. <laughs> right. <It's> like, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So we're overburdened on a very physiologic level, right? Like, if you think about the average adult woman by the time she's 20 years old, will have had almost 20 rounds of antibiotics. And then on average, between 20 and 30, for UTIs and other things that come up, we'll on average have another 10. So by the time we're 30... 30 rounds of antibiotics. So you're overburdened with the antibiotics, but then lack of fiber in our diet, lack of variety in our diet, and all those antibiotics kill out our microbiome. So then we're under-supported, right? We're getting this overexposure of toxins, but this under-support of nutrients. And then the most obvious is this overburden of stress and work and overwhelm and this under-support because we're not given permission in our lives and we don't give ourselves and our culture doesn't give us permission to just hit the reset button and we're not in communities the same way anymore no we're really not and it's also i i think it's still somewhat chic and cool to say i'm so busy we're trying to make that not cool but you know it's somehow i i still when people say it it's like oh oh oh, okay yeah yeah i'm busy and it's I a think badge of honor, isn't it? Is, it? I've exactly. really, the last five years has been a real, I'm really keen on walking my talk. And so as I was doing the research for this adrenal thyroid book, I was like, okay, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is, Aviva. My thyroid is fine, but I tended to like be very driven and yeah. burning mm-hmm. the candle at both ends and always feeling like I had to do more. And I had to take a step back and look at that. Like, what was it in me that was constantly driving me? And for me, I was mm-hmm. able to kind of peel back some really kind of primal Mm. layers of like my early origins being economically challenged and an actual security need. And I think a lot of us are living in survival mode because we're so scared. And the reality is we do. I mean, I think about like what it costs to rent an apartment in Mm -hmm. big cities, what it costs to, even if you have health insurance, meet your deductible, what food costs. And so it's natural that we feel like we do have to always do more. I taught at a conference yesterday and I asked the question that I ask at a lot of conferences now. And there were about 300 people in the audience. And I said, how many of you can just be sitting home on a weeknight? You've put in a good full day's worth of work. 
How many of you are relaxing? Maybe you're watching Game of Thrones or something else, and there's actually some part of, pretty noisy part of your brain saying, I should actually be doing something else. I should be getting something more productive. And literally, like, every hand just shoots up every single time. And then we criticize ourselves a lot, especially as women. And I think in the wellness world, there's also this really intense drive to always be healthier, always be cleaner, always be fitter, always have more of a yoga body. So we're actually driving ourselves to be healthier. For sure. (laughs) Whitney and I talked about that for a long time. We were, you know, trying to start a, a business and living in Soho together and we'd run to meetings, run to the office, run to workouts. And it was all just so stressful. And like if our workouts are not actually helping us feel better, then they're not really serving the purpose. Yeah. You know? And I think I think especially as women, we need to make time to have a practice yes. that fills us up because we are the mothers, the givers, the taker care ofers. Um, And we're giving all the time in one way or another. And if you don't have that practice to kind of fill back up, that's when I think most of us start to feel really depleted. And we've been talking about vitality Mm. a lot where so many diets are about losing weight or inches, not about feeding yourself for vitality. Or working out is to do this HIIT training and train harder and tone up, get stronger, lose weight, whatever it is and not about building a body for your lifetime mm-hmm. and keeping your yourself mobile and your joints lubricated and yourself limber yeah. and just feeling good i mean isn't yeah. that the point like i think sometimes in the in the in the journey to have it all we forget what the point is i agree and i think we don't stop and actually feel our bodies enough we yeah. don't just drop in and check in and give ourselves permission to actually sometimes do nothing. You know, it's funny. I mean, I'm 53. I've been doing yoga since I was 15. I've been on this healthy path since I was 15. And And for those that you can't, the view that can't see her, Viva is beautiful and gorgeous. Radiant. Yeah. Thank you. But you know what? I was doing yoga a couple of weeks ago and I was really judging my body. And I was like, oh my gosh, Aviva, you're 53. Like, when are you going to just love yourself completely? And it was this moment of just... We could actually literally go through our whole lives, whole lives, judging and having this monkey chatter of, I'm not enough, I have to do more. Yeah. I think social media makes it really hard. Yeah. Because there's so much compare and despair. And this whole food culture and how much of the power is taken away from us. Like we have no connection to our food. We have a lot of clients that come to us and say, I want to lose weight or what do you mean you don't count calories? And we always, we know that when clients come to us, they're coming to us for a reason. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's um, it's one that they know and sometimes it's the one they think they've come to us for. And what I mean by that is sometimes they'll say, I want to lose weight. And we say, okay, great. What else? Like mm-hmm. what's behind that? Yeah. You know, how what's do you want to, yeah, yeah, how do you want to yeah. feel? Exactly. So, okay, you're going to lose the weight. Let's just fast forward to there. What does your life look like? How do you feel? And we really try and get down to like this root feeling. You want to feel more love. You want to feel more powerful. Do you want to feel sexier? 
and then make that the carrot, not the yeah. weight loss, because that is such a powerful why, and that's what keeps you going, and that's what I think kind of keeps you out of the diet mentality too, because if you're after that, there's a lot of inputs to get you to feeling more loved, to feeling more powerful, and making sure that you're on that path requires that you're really clear on that why, and you're not mm-hmm. just anchored on the five pounds or whatever that is. Yeah, and when do we just give ourselves permission to do it because we deserve to? Yeah. Right? It's like I was teaching these practitioners yesterday, and I was saying, you know, everything I'm teaching you about self-care today is really important because when we're tired, we make more mistakes. We're not as kind to the people around us. We don't aren't as successful in business. We're more likely to have accidents. But all those reasons are still other reasons. It's like self-care is okay just because... We deserve to I know. take care of ourselves. I think that's why so many women that all of a sudden start thinking about fertility or are pregnant or postpartum and are breastfeeding, all of a sudden you now have the time to take your vitamins mm-hmm. and eat better and do all the things that is traditionally self-care. Um, and But it's because it's not about you. It's about right. your child. It's about your baby. Exactly. Like all of a sudden your child give you permission to take care of yourself. And wh- why can't we just give ourselves that permission? Sometimes I have to think in terms of like, okay, what would my best friend say to me right now? Like how am I, how am I talking to myself? Would my best friend talk to me this way? No way. She'd be so yeah. loving or yeah. nurturing or kind or just remind me to hit pause and step back and yeah yeah and I think back to what you said about autoimmune disorders and how it's it's really impacting women more than men I think also a lot of it is how much we internalize and like that stress that we're speaking to we're not dedicating the time to that self-care and so that stress lives in us in a way that I don't think it does for most men I don't want to stereotype that much but like my husband, for example, will make sure he takes the time to do X, Y, Z because he mm-hmm. knows that doing X, Y, Z make him a better person. So it's not it's a non-negotiable right. where it's really hard for me to make sure I take that time. There's so many layers of being a woman that are under acknowledged. And I think that, um, you know, even just stepping back and looking at the statistics, it's pretty well known and, and demonstrated that not only do women experience more stress than men, but we have more physiologic consequences of it. And there seem to be actual ways that our brain is wired, but also our cortisol response. So there have been studies, for example, that look at, um, these been, have been done in only heterosexual, like gender normative relationships, but a woman who comes home from work and she's feeling really stressed about her day and she shares her day with her male partner his cortisol does not go up from her sharing her stress. But if you flip the script and the man comes home and shares his stress with her, his cortisol goes down. Hers goes up. Similarly, a couple can have a fight before bed and his sleep isn't usually disturbed and his cortisol levels stay normal. Hers are disturbed and hers are normal. I mean, are not normal and her (laughs) sleep is not normal. And a lot of these um, conditions like autoimmune disease, for example but also insulin resistance, diabetes, PCOS, there are connections back to our stress response that run really, really deep. And I think that there are these other cultural layers that get put on it. And I'm watching even millennials. Like my mom, she's in her early 70s. She was a pretty diehard feminist, single mom. And I know it was really hard for her. She worked two jobs, but she was out there. I mean, she's coming to hear Bella Abzug when I was like six years old. I remember her with a big hat and 
We'd go to political rallies. And, you know, I understand for her the guilt of being a mom and working. But you'd think like with a couple of generations later and millennials, it would be easier. And I'm watching a lot of millennial moms I know who are crushing it at their jobs. But they're still the ones coming home and primarily, not always there are exceptions, but primarily they're still also the ones at home, even if they're primary breadwinners, taking care of the kids, getting the groceries. And also, if a man goes out, I was just talking to a woman a couple of days ago who got a really big job. I mean, a huge corporate job. And they have two kids. And the husband's actually a stay-at-home dad right now. But she's feeling guilty moving her family, even though she's like exponentially increasing their income. It's a, it's a great job where she knows that if her husband were the one that got the job, nobody would be like, oh, you're moving and you're taking your kids out of school. It would be like, mm-hmm. of course. And she's feeling guilty because she's also managing her husband's emotions yeah. because it's different for a man to be in that stay-at-home role. So we have so many layers of guilt and confusion on top of actually most of us being working outside the home and having kids. It's really complicated stuff. Yeah. It really is being those empaths. It feels like like when when you just said that, I really heard this idea of women um, taking on emotions and like that's part of the mother role, right? Yes. Is really taking on the burden. But at some point, that's where I was saying women really have to have the practices yes, to get do. through that, to work through that stress and that burden and release that. There's something called emotional work, and this is a measurable amount of work. And so emotional work is what women do that is the unseen kind of management of, for example, if you have, this has really been well studied, if you have a boardroom full of mostly men and a couple of women and there's something that needs to be done, it's more likely that the woman is going to be asked to do it and she'll say yes, but it's also more likely that the woman is going to volunteer to do it. Also, because we are so empathic and there are reasons for that, like we have oxytocin, it makes us really connected to other people. We think of oxytocin as the love hormone and it is, but really what it's doing is it's making us more empathic. And part of why it does that is so that we're able to read facial expressions of our babies and anticipate what they need. But we all have it, whether we have children or not. So we're the ones more likely to be managing emotional relationship. We're more likely to be managing that emotional intelligence. And we're not aware that we're doing that extra work either. So it can Mm -hmm. be quite fatiguing. Yeah. And in more um, Eastern traditional modalities, when talking about the chakra system, it really lines up with the endocrine system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these ancient traditions talked about how we have these chakras as energetic fields to be able to read our surroundings and to be able to sense fear if something was going to happen or um, to be able to experience love and that oxytocin like you're talking about. Yeah. But now we are in such a busy and stressful time, yet we still have this very open energetic body, which then it feels like it's very much affecting our endocrine system. Absolutely. And also our endocrine system has a rhythm to it. And that rhythm is not just this nine to five rhythm or now like eight to seven or kind of 24 hours, depending on 
you know, what your shift work is or whether you have flexible work hours, which is not really flexible for you. It's flexible for your corporation. Mm -hmm. So we've got these 28, roughly, you know, 28 or 30 or 32, whatever your cycle is, hormonal rhythms. And even if your hormones are in like amazing balance, still most of us right before our period, right before our moon time, we want to go within. We want to get quiet. We want to cave. We want to nurture. We want to rest. We, We need to replenish. We've lost blood. We want to be more at home. It's mm-hmm. not when you really want to be standing in front of a group of people giving a presentation or whatever your job is. And there's no room for that rhythmic life. And yet our hormonal health actually really depends on it. And our hormonal health kind of dictates our emotional health. So yeah, I think we, we need to reclaim rhythm. And it's interesting to even think about it from a business perspective. You know, business is invented by men and has been run by men for many millennia. Yep. And now as more and more women take the helm, what will it look like? Yes. Like, Is there a way to weave the feminine into the fabric of what is traditional corporate business mentality? And even thinking about things like uh, maternity leave, you know, we have a great maternity policy at Saqqara, but now that I am a mother and went through it, it's like we have a great one compared to the rest of America, but... To, to step out of it for a minute and just think about what does a mother actually need. Right. It's really hard to do, one, as an executive and owner of a company, because it's not part of the system. It's still very linear. It's still very masculine. But it feels really important. It's like, what do women need to really excel in the workplace and to really ask ourselves that. And it would be a lot easier if we were all synced up with the moon. <laughs> you know, also, <laughs> and we I were think all we had our periods at the same time and then we could really schedule things that way. Well, you know, I business shuts also, down for yes, seven days. Is that, and I think also <laughs> like first and second wave feminism, women were so intensely adamant about not being treated differently because of biology that to some extent we discounted so our biology. And so how do we say, you know, actually, it's like, it's okay, we can fight for for getting rid of a period tax, because it's easy to say, yeah, this should not be a luxury, right? Having a tampon should not be a luxury. Right. Mm -hmm. But can we fight for the right to have a day off if you're someone with a really heavy period or PMS? Can you fight or even just need a day off without sort of being like, oh, yeah, you know, the stigma of that time of the month again. Exactly. And so we're fighting our own biology because we don't want to feed into old stigmas. It's really challenging. Yeah, we're trying to fit into the masculine model. Exactly. That's so interesting. And I think sometimes if we had a couple of days off, well, at least for some women, they wouldn't have as many cramps and they wouldn't have PMS because what is happening is they're fighting against their need to rest. Just like when we're exhausted, we all know what happens if you fight against exhaustion. It doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. So how can we go with our biology without being judged or stigmatized by it, even if it's just a couple of days to work from home if you need it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of the reasons we are on this path of, of food as medicine is because food really was the way we took care of ourselves and felt like we could show up. Mm-hmm. And in the workplace, in, you know, our love lives, in every area, it was kind of our foundation. How do you think food plays a role in overall health. I know you have a farm. 
I've seen on your Instagram, yeah. you picking all the herbs. Yeah. Um, how does food as medicine play a role in your practice and your belief system? So it's huge for me. So my entree, and no pun intended, like an entree, <laughs> into wellness, even before women's wellness in a way, was actually food and po- food politics. Mm. So it was food politics and ecological politics that led me to women's studies, that led me to women's health. And it kind of went back to this whole like women are to be plundered like the earth thing, right? So we don't take care of our planet. And I, I really do believe women's bodies are kind of the canary in the coal mine of we're the microcosm of this bigger macrocosm. We reflect what's going on and we do it really sensitively through our hormonal system because it's so, so sensitive. So for me, going back to food, like it's one of the things I just really don't truly ever compromise on. Even when I'm traveling, I try to really eat well and nurture my body because it's, it's so, it's like the lowest hanging fruit in a way. Again, no pun intended, mm-hmm. but it's what we do actually have a lot of control over and can make a lot of decisions about. And our food is connected to our planet and our planet is connected to our well-being. Everything we do to our planet is going to come back to us. Yeah. It's going to come right back into us. But it's also about nurturing. And I think so many of us as women, even those of us who are in wellness and, and have, even for me, like I can think back to food stories I heard as a little girl. I had an uncle, my mom's brother, who spent a lot of time with us when I was a kid. And he only dated really tall, thin, blonde fashion models. And I remember one of his girlfriends, she was like, yeah, I only eat standing up because then all the weight will go to my feet. No. I'll never forget her. I (laughs) was like six years old. (laughs) And my uncle would say disparaging things to my mom and my grandmother who were like, you know, they were like size six women, but they were you know, 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five, certainly not fashion models. They were beautiful Eastern European round mm-hmm. type. Women. Women, yeah. Yeah. And even now, like sometimes, even though I've been in wellness and I'm fit and I'm trim, I can still hear that voice once in a while. It's just kind of like there, there are these things called introjections, which are stories or words or terms or voices or things that we hear that are cultural, that aren't ours, but they can have a pretty loud space in our head. So for me... Working with women and food is really complex, actually, because I want to help women learn to nurture their body and nurture their hormones and nurture their well-being and just feel nurtured and love eating, mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. healthy food. But there's so much work to undo in our culture. So all these cultural introjections of even just what eating means. I wanted to write a book called Nourished Woman at one point. And this book, like one of the biggest wellness book agents in New York, he said, why would you call a book Nourished Woman? It just sounds like fat. And I was like, really? Wow. And he said, well, think about it, Aviva. Even the trimmest women you know probably want to lose five pounds. And I thought, you know, no, it's so true. he's actually right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think how do we think about what nourished means? And why do we equate nourished with chubby or round or overeating? So mm-hmm. I'm working with women That's to peel so back all these layers of what all even eating means. Yes, mm-hmm. all the programming. The programming around food, but then also whenever we talk about nourishment at Sakara, we try and remind everyone, not even just women, that every time you sit down to eat, you're deciding whether or not you're worthy of that nourishment. Absolutely. So forget all even all the inputs that you've heard about what you should oh. be like or shouldn't be like, but even just you believe that you're worthy to sit down every day and give your body the nutrients that it needs to thrive. That's yes. self-care again, right? Yeah. Are you worthy of self-care? It is. And self-talk, like how many of us sit down to even a beautifully healthy meal and 
are thinking about the calories or thinking about, is this going to make me sick? I was at a, a conference this weekend and a woman who is an amazing healer said she was serving this beautifully curated lunch and the food was marked, you know, gluten-free, vegan. All the food was organic. All the meat was locally sourced for the people who ate meat. And a woman went to put food on a plate and they were using paper plates for this particular meal. And the woman said, is the paper plate gluten-free? And I was like, she wasn't celiac. And I was just like, when do we stop wow. stressing ourselves? And I get it. I get the food aversion, especially if people have illnesses where mm-hmm. food can make them sick. But how are we talking to ourselves about our food? And how scared are we? And what is that doing if to our bodies? People are so scared of food. You know, yeah. we... I can't even tell you how many times we get the emails and client questions of like, okay, but what shouldn't I eat? Mm -hmm. And we don't talk about that at Saqqara because we're similar to what you were saying. We're trying to help people reestablish their relationship to food so that it's a joyful experience and an experience that feels nourishing and full of abundance. And typically in the diet mentality, we're taught here are the 10 list of 10 things that you can't eat here are the list of 20 things you know you can't do and pe- I think people become really addicted to that yes. and so then they look at food through this lens of like what shouldn't I do instead of the lens of what should I be eating every single day yeah. and we talk about if you can just make sure you get that then having the I don't know what do we want to pick on today french fries um, <laughs> which is or, actually my single favorite yeah no thing. I love it like then you can have it and maybe it'll bring you joy instead of guilt because yeah. you know you've nourished the entire day well, and that's part of it too right is as women we don't necessarily allow ourselves to have pleasure mm-hmm. and so even if you experience pleasure the flip side of it is then an guilt. hour later or yeah. five minutes I shouldn't have eaten that I can't I have no willpower I you know Like the negative self-talk just comes pouring in. So how can we truly like taste it and Mm -hmm. savor it and And enjoy it and feel good about it? Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say about eliminating things out of your diet is you can eliminate everything out of your diet until you're basically eating nothing. And that still is not going to solve your problem. Because the good bacteria in your gut that you want to grow and help build that immune system needs to be nourished too. It needs diversity too. If we yeah. get our diet down to a few foods because we're so scared of eating everything, right? then we can't nourish our health. And so it really becomes this vicious cycle of like yeah. you could really restrict to the point where you're adding damage, not right. healing. Well, yeah. that was Danielle before starting Sakara, She did a water fast mm-hmm. and that was not healing. That no. was not nourishing. Definitely put me on the right trajectory and help yeah. me help me hit rock bottom so that we could create Sakara and I could move mm-hmm. to study nutrition. But yeah, and I, I also we were just with um, Dr. Joe Dispenza this past weekend, mm-hmm. and he was talking about how your internal state creates your external reality in so many ways, and that we need to learn to control our internal state Mm -hmm. and not let our external state always dictate our internal state. Mm -hmm. And I think about that with the French fries or the wine or whatever, is that if you can release the guilt, if you can actually enjoy eating the French fries on occasion, um, because you know you're coming at it from a healing, nourished place, I actually don't think they're as bad for you as we might typically think. I think that things like that, if they can bring you joy, are actually net positive not net negative because your your kind of internal world is safe 
nourished and whatever you're doing with, for me, it's a glass of wine is bringing you joy. And that in and of itself is, is nutrition. I want to be careful to, um, not to disagree with what Joe said. And I definitely feel like there's so much we can do to cultivate a healthier, more nourished internal state. And when our internal state is healthier, we're more open to opportunity. We have better relationships. We feel better. We take more chances. Our cognitive function is better. And at the same time, acknowledge that food addiction is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. Stress is a very real thing. And we live in a culture that is, not to sound conspiratorial, but actually, literally, our food industry is trying to create not just an external reality, but to drive internal reality programming, advertising, um, 24-hour work worlds, um, consumption, like the amount of programming that we have to purchase things really drives our internal reality so much. So if our food is causing our neurotransmitters to make us depressed or make us become addicted or make us obsessive, and it's not like addiction is just one thing, right? It's like you get this dopamine rush from eating a certain food right? that's been put in front of you from the time you were eating solids um, that dopamine rush is going to also get triggered and get a hit when you go on your cell phone and then you go on your Instagram and you see an influencer who's subtly selling something to you and then you get another dopamine rush from ordering it. So, you know, on Amazon and Amazon's going to sell you 15 more things that you think you need. And so we really have to, in a way, be able to say this is happening in our world and become super to me, it's almost rebellious about it, right? There is actually a revolutionary aspect to saying, I'm not going to have that anymore. And I am going to determine more of my internal state. And even, I mean, I grew up in a housing project with a single mom who, like I said, worked two jobs, but she still made sure we had what she identified at that time as healthy food on the table. Like there are Mm -hmm. things we can all still do. I don't want to minimize, you know, being socioeconomically challenged and living in a food desert, but we have to recognize that it's not simply just our internal state. Our internal state is being triggered. Hijacked. It is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. But I think also with this addiction, it can be addiction to food or it can be addiction to consumption and to purchasing. And how can we get to that place where we're only taking on as much as we actually need Mm -hmm. and not excess we're living in this world of abundance and it's around us all the time and it's coming up in your instagram feed you know to buy more to like more to do more to be more and and it's even targeted at us oh yes right as wellness people i don't mean us the three of us but i mean people who are interested in beautiful furnishings you can now get everything organic and ecological and (laughs) animal cruelty free and so it's like need to replace everything you had before and buy all new exactly so there can even be consumption of beautiful healthy wonderful things that can make us think greenwashing that you're doing well exactly but i think that would really help the planet if we can get to a place where we're just taking on as much as we need whether it's food whether it's work whether it's Mm. you know, you name it, consumption, um, finding that place of balance. You know, Danielle, earlier you mentioned this question, which I actually talk with my patients about and talk about in my last book, which is how do I really want to feel? But, you know, to what you're saying, Whitney, it kind of comes also around to how do I feel? Mm -hmm. And that lets us get under to the next level down is 
okay, well, how do I feel when I purchase this? Does it actually make me feel better when I acquire? And if it does, great. Like if it's something that you've really been saving for and it has value. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it doesn't. Like we recognize that we got that thing, but then... You don't care about it three months later. or a day later, there's the next thing that you realize, oh, well, I need that to go with that. And so I think for me, a lot of my life now in terms of like my inner state is actually spending more time intentionally checking in with how am I feeling? Mm -hmm. And I had this experience maybe five or six years ago. You know that experience when you're in an electrical storm and the power goes out in your house Mm -hmm. and it's really quiet? Yeah. Like you realize... The refrigerator is not humming. The little light that always has a hum that you don't even notice anymore. It's really, truly quiet. And I had an experience some years back where I had that inner state. It wasn't an electrical storm. Something big happened in my life. And when I stepped back from it, I was like, oh, my gosh. It's like I just got completely, it was like that thunderstorm feeling. Yeah. And that became a touchstone for me of, okay, that's what quiet truly feels like. So when I notice the noise, and it can be the noise of thinking I need to buy the thing that makes me feel that a little bit agitated or like I don't have enough, or the noise of I'm really tired, but what I'm really hearing is I want to eat that something that seems energizing at the moment, but how am I really feeling? No, actually, maybe you're tired and you need to rest. It's not that you want the coffee or the chocolate chip cookie. And sometimes it is. Like, sometimes you want it, but then you know the difference. That's the thing. Yeah, this is exactly what Dr. Joe Dispenza was saying, is that, and I might not have have articulated it properly earlier, but it's making sure that you're in charge. Yes. And that you're not letting your... Habits. Yeah, your habits or your reactivity or just like what you're used to guide your life, that you're constantly asking the question, is this actually what I want? Is this going to actually make me feel good? Is Mm -hmm. this actually necessary? And therefore you create new neurons and you have more neural plasticity because you're not constantly firing off the same neural pathway. Exactly. You're creating new neural networks by asking yourself those questions every single time. And being conscious. Mm -hmm. Yes, and some of it requires actually creating, you know, back to what you were saying about a practice, because I think we tend to just assume that these patterns are coming out of nowhere. And like we were just talking about, some of them are externally triggered, but also when your stress response, when your adrenal whole cortisol adrenaline response gets activated, it actually hijacks your willpower. So it puts you Mm -hmm. into this very primal reactive mode. It's not like, let me think about things right now. It's just like, let me react. I'm going to constantly be on the lookout for danger. And I'm going to constantly react. And so we do feel a scarcity of resources when we're in survival mode. We do feel a scarcity of calories when we're in survival mode. It is a time when we're more likely to hoard or acquire or get stuck in an addiction. And so it does require Mm -hmm. some amount of consciously stepping out of stress and reactivity and calming that overactive nervous system down to have the bandwidth. To to even consider. Yes. Yes. To do that reset. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's so a really helpful. great way to end our episode with Dr. Aviva Ram. Thank you so much for being on the Sakara Life wait, Podcast. Wait, did you forget the one question you wanted to ask? Oh, yes. What is it? <laughs> well, so before we let you go, we do something called light work. Mm-hmm. And this is a practice for our Sakara Lights out there. So if you have one thing that you could suggest for our Sakara Lights as a practice, that they could do to start implementing some of these things that we've talked about today, 
what would you suggest? So I have my favorite practice. I teach all my patients. I teach it when I teach at conferences, and I love this practice. So it's, I went to a conference, and I learned it from this master of relaxation response, you know, one of the kind of like forefathers of it, Herbert Benson. And when he taught it, I thought he called it the quickie, but it's not (laughs) called the quickie. But I, I actually, we can like, call it the quickie. So I always just tell my patients, like, whenever you want, wherever you can, just go tell people you're going to go have a quickie. <laughs> and it's really simple. It's breathing in through your nose really deeply. You can have your eyes open or closed to the count of four. And then exhaling to the count of six. While you're inhaling, you say, I am. Just, you know, mm-hmm. internally you're saying it. And then while you're exhaling, you say, at peace. So it's, mm-hmm. I am at peace. And it's Amazing. I usually recommend doing it at least four times in a row. So the whole thing takes you like 30 seconds. Really is a quickie. Yeah, it is a quickie. But if you're having trouble falling asleep, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't get back to sleep, if you're in traffic, definitely do it with your eyes open. If you're having like checkout rage, you know, at a grocery store, if you're at a board meeting, wherever you need to do it, it's just the quickest Reset, and it's really fun to say, like, go and have a quickie. (laughs) All right, so Carlites, that is your light work this week. Go have a quickie. <laughs> we love you, Aviva. Thank, love you you so Thank you so much. Thank you so much. you, guys. Today's episode with Dr. Aviva Ram, we talked a lot about the postpartum motherhood journey. So today we have a Sakara story from Melanie in Florida. She says, I'm 12 months postpartum and I did not think I could feel good again. I've lost over 11 pounds in the last three weeks. I never expected to lose any weight. My joints have stopped aching. I can run again. I'm sleeping better. And the stress of what to eat for lunch at work is gone. I'm feeling so good. That is so amazing. I'm so happy that we get to do this work, helping women through all stages of their life, but especially postpartum. Yeah, at a time when I think you feel as a mother that you have to be taking care of everyone else, especially this little being. It's like, who's taking care of you? Right. I think that's something you talk a lot about, Danielle, is about how the body is naturally set up to give the baby everything it needs, and it'll just take from the mother whatever it needs. And so how important it is to be replenishing your vitamin and mineral and energy reserves. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And also, I think that it's not really in our culture to take care of the mother. You know, even all the gifts are for the baby. But if we can start to change our minds a little and think of it as, you know, the community around the mother, it's the community's job to take care of the mother. Because as long as the mother is well, the mother will be taking care of the baby. Aho. Aho. Well, thank you, Melanie. And we're so happy we got to be a part of your journey to feeling like your best self. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com. Or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. This podcast was recorded live at Noya House in New York City. 